Would you grab your Bibles, turn to John 15, let's read this before you are seated. So all of this is one context, and so I want to read it all again. Um, We'll uh, look at another aspect of it um, today. John 15, beginning in verse 1. So I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Well, we had six more points about abiding that we were going to do, and we are not. Um, I got to looking at things yesterday, and then um, it led me to say, let's go back and look at this a little bit later, and it ended up being about five and a half more hours last night of just kind of walking through this, and so we're going to, we had six more that I thought we were going to do today, but we're just going to do three, and then we'll finish up this section on abiding um, uh, next week. So we are looking at the words of Jesus in these days that are centered around the word abiding and fruit. Jesus tells us in verse 1 that He is the true vine. This is the seventh and last I am statement in the Gospel of John. He has already said He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the door of the sheep. He is the good shepherd. He is the resurrection and the life. And He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is the last one. I am the true vine. The true vine, this word true means genuine. It means the original, it means the supreme one, none other than Him. He is the only one who gives spiritual life, and so He is the true vine. This word connected to Jesus is used a couple other places in the Gospel of John. Uh, John said in John 1.9 that Jesus is the true light. He's the original light. He is the supreme light. In John 6.32, Jesus said that, He was the true bread. He's the original bread. He is the real bread that has come down from heaven. And then in John 6, 55, he said, My flesh is true food, the original food, the only food, and my blood is the true drink. And then so Jesus says, I'm the true vine. And then he said that my father is at work as the gardener or the vine dresser. He is ever at work in the garden, in the church, working on cultivating among his people that they would bear fruit they would bear more fruit and then as verse 8 says they would bear much fruit 
So we began um, a few weeks ago looking at the principles in John 15, 1 through 11 about abiding. And there are six of them that we have seen so far. We have six more to go and we will deal with three. Here's where we have been. Abiding is commanded. Seven verses with ten specific uses of the word in this section. Abiding, absolutely critical. Jesus repeating this word over and over. So abiding is not an option for followers. It is commanded to us. Secondly, abiding um, has two primary meanings. One is salvation. We cannot remain in Christ and Christ remain in us unless there has been salvation. So one aspect of abiding is that we have come to faith in Christ. He lives inside of His people. And then in sanctification, we remain connected to Him by obeying the commandments, loving Him, and following Him. And so abiding means that we remain in fellowship. He in fellowship with us and we in fellowship with Him. Thirdly, we talked about that when we abide, it means that we will bear fruit. Fruit meaning the Christ-like characteristics uh, of His nature and who He is. They begin, they be, they begin to be manifest in our life. And so again, Jesus here has this process of looking at fruit. He speaks of fruit. We will bear fruit. Then he uses the adjective more fruit, and then he, he, he gives it and he says much fruit. And so there's this increasing aspect toward maturity. And so abiding results in bearing fruit. And then last week we looked at that when we abide, it maintains our spiritual health. And so in verse 4, the second part and third part of that, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So if we want to develop and maintain our spiritual health, it is connected with knowing the word, keeping our lives connected in relationship with Christ, and that keeps us healthy and bearing fruit. The fifth aspect of abiding is it reminds us of our position and His position. So in verse 5, Jesus repeats what He said in verse 1. He says, I am the vine, you are not the vine, you are the branches. And so one of the things that abiding reminds us of is that we are in desperate need of Him, that we are not the source, that He is the source of life. And so it reminds us as we abide in Him and remain in Him, that He is God, we are not. He is the true vine, and we need Him. And so we, we, we are reminded of who He is and who we are and our position there. And then we closed last week that abiding is an exercise of the will that moves us into maturity. And so Jesus says in the last part of verse 5, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This literally means nothing at all is what it means in the Greek. You cannot bear fruit in and of ourselves. We must remain and abide. So we cannot bear spiritual fruit without him. He does the work of much fruit. But I would remind us that God develops and God does this great work. But we are also to work. We are, this Christian life is described as fighting the good fight. It is described as running a race. It is described as standing firm and standing on the foundation. And so there are many words like that, taking up your cross and following me. And so he does the work, but we do work as well by submitting to him and following him. And so we've, again, we have dealt with these 
six principles, and so let's begin to look at the seventh principle. It may say number one up there, but just ignore it or, or write it down. I don't know. I'm confused as well. My notes are a mess as I've extend, um, kind of expanded this in, the, in, the, in these days. But this is the seventh principle. And abiding, and it's connected to those who don't know the Lord but claim to know the Lord. Abiding's neglect makes those in and around the church of no use. And again, we have been talking about this in these days that Judas has now gone from the room. And so Jesus is speaking to the eleven. He is speaking to the eleven. He is speaking to those who, have, who are abiding. Judas is the branch. It is not abiding. He's the branch that is cut off and he, is, he has removed himself. He has turned away. He has gone to betray the Lord. And so this neglect of Judas's life and this neglect of people in and around Christianity makes their lives ultimately of no use. And so we are not speaking here in this point about believers. We are speaking about those who are okay with Christianity. They're okay with Jesus. They're okay with coming to church. They're okay maybe even being a part of a Bible study. Judas was all of those things. And yet Judas never ultimately believed he was the branch that was cut off and removed himself as well of this decision to not follow and worship Christ. And so let's look at verse 6. Look at that, look at that with me. Everyone, if or if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So abide in this context here has, in this whole context, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment, has multiple meanings. One is abiding in sanctification, that we grow and so we remain connected to Him. Abiding also is connected with salvation, and that's the context here in verse 6. Judas is one who didn't come to believe, and so he is the branch that is cut off. He is thrown away because he did not abide. He's like a branch cut off and withers, and the branches like this are gathered, and they were thrown into the fire and burned. And so context is everything. So I want to remind us, context is everything when we study the Bible. Judas is not present. They're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, or they are either in the Garden of Gethsemane where, where Jesus is teaching these things and saying these things. Judas has gone to betray and to get his money and to come back and to kiss Jesus on the cheek and to betray him. So he is speaking not to men who are going to reject him. He is speaking to men who are going to remain and they are going to abide. But he's given a description of the one who has left them, the one who has turned his back on Jesus and is not going to remain and will not abide. So there are, as we have talked in these days, some in and around the church who claim the name of Jesus, but they never produce fruit. So we have established pretty clearly, I believe, that they are not true believers, but they are ones like Judas who play the part. The language from Christ here is a bit stronger now in regard to the consequences of those who do not remain in relationship or don't come to faith. The word emphasis here is pretty striking. 
fruit is mentioned eight times. Abide is mentioned 15 times in John 15, 1 through 10. In me is mentioned six times. I in you or I in him or is mentioned two times. And so those who never come to faith in Christ and remain around Christianity, all of these glorious promises, all of the great things that come to us in result of salvation are not theirs. They just mentally know about those things. They can speak about those things, but they don't know them personally and they're not willing to stake their life in them and on them. And some of these people are in and around Christianity for all kinds of reasons, but they're just not willing to ever believe. And again, Judas is our example of this. I would remind us, Judas was sent out twice, cast out demons, preached the gospel, healed the sick, did that twice on short-term mission trips, and yet he is one who did not ultimately believe. He is the one who was cut out. So let me give you three principles in regard to those that are in and around the church but aren't true believers um, that Jesus speaks about here. First principle is this, is that fruitless branches wither and die because they are never in a saving relationship with Christ. They die because they have never or they have never been connected in salvation to Jesus. So they die ultimately from a lack of relationship or fellowship with Christ. There is no connection to the one who is life. And people throughout the ages have been like Judas. They are around even today, somewhat attached, okay about certain things, but eventually they go out, they leave, not transfer membership to another church these are people who turn their back on the gospel and don't believe anymore that's what he's referring to here he's not turning referring to those that go to another church but they leave they walk away from the faith they walk away ultimately from jesus so fruitless branches they wither and they die because they were never in a relationship secondly fruitless branches never depended on jesus for life Jesus gives a great caution here for those who think that they can produce a healthy spiritual life apart from a saving relationship with Christ. So there are some in and around the church who are okay with Christianity, are okay with the things that we say, but just don't believe. But ultimately, what they decide is this, is my way is going to be the way. I'm okay about Jesus I'm okay about the gospel, but I'm not going to yield my life and give my life and believe in the gospel. It is still their way, not Jesus' way. Thirdly, fruitless branches ultimately are judged by the Lord and they are dealt with harshly. I have several things I want to read and let me just read this one and then I'm going to ask you to turn to one in just a moment. John the Baptist, when he was having his thriving baptism ministry and he's preaching and it's a baptism of repentance the pharisees came out to check out what was going on one day john never shy to share his heart about things and his perspective on things said this to the pharisees this is matthew 3 7 through 10 but when he saw many of the pharisees and the sadducees coming to his baptism he said to them 
John was real good at building consensus and seeker-sensitive mentality. You brood of vipers, is what he called them. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And listen what John tells them. Same words that Jesus is speaking about here. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, and he must have pointed to stones there in the Jordan River. He he says these words, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now, John tells them, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Always, Scripture interprets what? Scripture. So here's Matthew, John quoting, John the Baptist quoting Jesus, saying the same theme. Those that don't produce authentic biblical fruit from a saving relationship with Christ, they are cut off from the gospel and ultimately judged and cast from God's presence for all of eternity. So Jesus emphasizing here there are those who never produce fruit but speak the language they are remember in the upper room when jesus said one of you is going to betray me and they all look around the room and none of them suspect judas is one that's going to betray but his heart had never connected but jesus knew his heart and ultimately only god really knows those who are his but there are some ways that we can get some indication that is connected to fruit and so john the baptist says that jesus says that here now i want you to go to matthew 13 for a moment so jesus says those that do not abide and those who do not remain they are uh, cut off they are thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and they are thrown into the fire And so the deepest consequences are given to those who play the game of authentic faith, but they are not true believers. And so Jesus gave a parable and an explanation of a parable in Matthew chapter 13. So if you would look with me in verse 24. So we put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want, do you want us to go and gather them? He said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now we know what happened after he said this. The 12 looked at each other like, what? So a little bit later, they come back and were like, hey, can you explain that? You know, that thing you said a while ago. Can you explain that? So go to 36 now. 
So then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And so he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons, believers of the kingdom, the weeds of the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed, sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is what Jesus is talking about in this. Those who refuse to come to Him by faith, and eventually, in the final judgment, the Lord sends out His angels and they gather in the world those who had rejected Jesus. And they are cut off from relationship. And they are separated from God. And while those that have believed and abided and remained in Christ because Christ was in them and they had come to authentic salvation, they will dwell in the presence of God for all of eternity. Those who refuse that, even those in and around the church who sang the songs, lifted the hands, prayed the prayers, attended, served, but never came to faith in Christ. They will be cut off and separated in a place of fire, in a place where they will not be in God's presence. And and ultimately, the fire of hell is not the worst thing about hell. The, The worst thing about hell is that God's presence is not there. There's no one, and and he's the only one who has the power to bring the comfort to those who are separated and yet. You can't make decisions on the other side of this life about where we're going to spend eternity. That work is done here. God revealing Himself and our belief and faith in that revelation. So I, I'm reminding all of us of this reality. Not because I think it's important, but because Jesus thinks it's important. These are His words. Saying to the eleven, you need to be aware of this, that there will be people in and among you who will claim my name, but they've never believed. And ultimately what will happen is they will be separated. Some of them will walk away in this life and then ultimately in the future they will not come to faith. So this neglect of coming to relationship with Christ is really, really important. So I'm not communicating anything. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of sandwich all of this at the end today. I'm not trying to lead anybody this morning to doubt your salvation. I'm just asking you to examine your heart. Just being here today is not enough. It is only the blood of Jesus. It is only the work that he did that grants unto us salvation. So for all of us, if you've grown up in the church, um, sometimes you hear this, well, I've, I've been in the church my whole life. Okay. 
Have you come to faith in Christ? That's the ultimate thing. Let's look at the next principle. This is principle number eight. Abiding, love this, influences prayer. It has an impact upon our prayer life. So look at verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, there's a lot of craziness out there in evangelical land, particularly in the West, in regard to this verse. So let's make sure we get the actual meaning from Jesus about these next, next instructions about abiding. So let me make this statement. Prevailing prayer, prayer that works and has an impact, is connected to abiding in Christ and is connected to being filled with His words. So prevailing prayer is connected to abiding in Christ and His words. And so Jesus here says there are two great implications, there are two great musts in regard to our prayer life that we must have a part of our prayers every time we pray. One is this, we are abiding in His presence. So look, at, look what He says there. If you abide in me, if you are, again, this is describing someone who has come to faith in Christ, but is also describing someone who is maintaining and developing this relationship in their sanctification. So if you are abiding and remaining in me, you've come to salvation. You are remaining in me and walking in the truth and walking in obedience. So that's the first condition. We must abide in His presence. If we are a true branch We do that in salvation that happens naturally. We are in Him. He is in us. But there also must be that aspect of our sanctification where we, by discipline, are remaining and walking with Him. So the first condition for answered prayer. Listen, the first condition for answered prayer is to keep our relationship with Christ alive by walking in obedience with Him. You can't just live however you want to live and say, okay, God, here's my stuff. I want to lay at your feet. Do your work. God has always, look at the Old Testament, blessed obedience. He told the nation, you're going into this land. It will go well with you in only one way. If you will embrace every word that comes out of God's mouth. Joshua told the people that. Moses had told the people that. And God had communicated through Moses and Joshua to the people. It is critical that we walk with God. God blesses obedience. So he says, if you abide in me. Now let me just touch on this for a moment. Keep in mind, Judas is not present. Now today, all over the world, all kinds of prayers are going out in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer. Is he obligated to answer the prayers of those who have not believed in him? I would say he's not. He's not obligated, and yet this is what makes God so incredible. Even those who are broken and have rejected him, sometimes he can even answer their prayers. But I would stress this, He's not obligated to do so. 
The context, again, I want to remind us, the context is he is speaking to those 11 who are abiding and remaining in relationship with him. So in salvation, we are his, he is in us. When we pray because we are his, he listens. There is more of an obligation to his people and those that he is in as temples of the Holy Spirit, to answer their prayers. And so, and he's also has, has a tendency as well, as we've talked already, to answer the prayers of those that are walking in obedience and remaining in him. And so, one of the conditions of prayer is, is that we are abiding, and part of that is salvation, and we are abiding in our sanctification, in our pursuit of him. So the second condition to the answer of prayer is connected to the words. So look, look again. Look what he says in verse 7. If you or when you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So here's the second condition for answered prayer. That the words of Jesus abide in us. So when His words are alive and abiding in us, guess what we will naturally pray? We will pray the words of Jesus. When the words are alive and our lives are filled with it and our, we're filling our mind, memorizing, reading it with our friendships and in our families talking about the truth of God and, and, and His Word is alive in our lives, then we will naturally pray in line with the words of Jesus. They will simply flow out of our heart and from our mouth in regard to our prayers. For those who are not in a saving relationship with Christ and are not abiding in Him, His words will not be filled in their lives. And so this condition is connected to the truth being alive in us and the truth abiding in us, the words of Christ. And so as we abide in Him and His words abide in us, Our prayers, watch this, our prayers are naturally shaped and conformed in the direction of the will of God. So we're not asking silly requests. We are asking the way Jesus taught the 11 in Luke 11, where, or the 12, when they watched him pray one day and they said, can you teach us how to pray like that? And so Jesus said, here's how you pray. You pray first of all, in line with the name of God, our Father who art in heaven. You are otherworldly, hallowed, honorable, exalting is your name. So when we pray, one, we pray in line with the nature and the name of God, His character, His glory. Secondly, we pray in line with His abiding presence, this saving work that He has done in us. And thirdly, we pray in line with the words of God. What has been taught and what has been set forth. Let me share a verse. Listen to this. Here's how we ought to pray. This is why the Word of God ought ought to be so important in our lives. Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 3, verse 16. He writes these words. Let the Word of Christ... Dwell in you, abide in you, exist in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with faithfulness in your hearts to God. So he says, let the word of God dwell richly in you. Jesus says, here's a second priority in regard to answered prayer is the words of God are alive in our lives. And they pour from our heart out of our mouth in line with the name and the nature of God to his glory as we are abiding in this saving relationship that he has worked in our lives. So it's his name. It is his presence. It is the words that are to guide our prayers. And then Jesus says, so ask whatever you wish. Now again, he's not like going, he's not turning this principle up on its head. So do everything in my name, but then just ask whatever you want that's silly and has nothing to do with my will. That's not what he's saying. He's ask whatever you wish in line with what? With his kingdom coming. With the glory of who he is. We ask in line with his nature and his name, his words, and his purpose is for us. And so if our prayers, not calling anybody out, I don't, I don't have a secret line to your prayer life to hear what you pray, but if our prayers are filled with silliness, really silliness, just to get stuff, and it's not happening, it's probably because he's not going to answer that kind of prayer. Jesus says, I'm going to answer the kind of prayer that is connected to the one in saving relationship who remains in me. My words are dwelling richly in them. They are praying words in line with my name and my nature. And so in line with that, you ask whatever you wish. Now, ultimately, it's still God's prerogative to answer that. But do you think he's going to answer that more than a new Mercedes? Yeah, I think he is. So we need, we, we need to do adjusting. And these pastors out there, and these evangelists out there that are teaching that God's this big vending machine, just ask whatever you wish. Just do some stuff and push the right buttons, and he's just obligated. That's heresy. It's not biblical. It's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's set forth the principles. Abide in me, and my words abide in you. Then ask, because your prayers are going to be in line with my will and my nature. And so that means even in our, even in our praying, we do this. When the word is dwelling richly in us, and I, I don't get, I don't get humanity, my, my own humanity sometimes. Are, are you like me? And maybe you're not. You may be better than me. I'm praying, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, why am I not praying anymore? And I'm thinking about this thing, and my thoughts have drifted even when I was praying. And so even in our praying, we must, watch this, take thoughts captive that come to even to distract us. So this is how Paul described that, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Even in our prayer life, we are to be focused and dwelling on the Word and taking captive those thoughts to distract us in our prayers. So this ask whatever you wish is not for the benefit of self, but we would pray in line with God's will and God's desires. 
And so those who abide in Christ and His words, they will pray rightly and they will pray biblically in line with God's words. Let me give you again, here are the three priorities of prayer. That we pray in His name, in line with His name and its nature. Secondly, that we would, we would abide in Him. We would remain in this relationship, walking in obedience. Thirdly, that the Word would dwell richly in us, that His words would abide in us. And we ought to. The best thing that you ought to do, and I think, I can't remember who it is. It's a lady, wrote a book years and years ago about praying. I can't remember her name. Anybody remember her name? But it's, what, yeah, Stormy O'Marty, and she wrote How to Pray Scripture. That's a great book. If you want to get a book, go home today, get a book. It's, it's all about praying the words of Scripture over our lives and in our families and for our church. So we will pray the words of Scripture, and just Jesus says there, and it will be done for you. You see, God responds to, Jesus says, it answered prayers that align themselves with the words of Jesus. He's not a genie. I saw lots in the Middle East, saw lots of Aladdin lamps being sold everywhere in shops. God's not a genie where we rub the lamp, and we get whatever our wishes are. If that was the case, who's in charge, God or us? We are. We're not in charge, by the way, just as a reminder. He is in charge. One of the reasons we don't get what we want, James said it this, and we're going to move on to the last point this morning. James said it like this in James 4, verse 3. You ask, and you don't receive... Because you ask wrongly to spend what you're asking on your own passions. That's what James writes. James 4.3 You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So if we want a thriving prayer life, three things are priority. We pray in line with His name and His nature. And you can't really separate His name and its nature. We abide in Him. In this saving relationship, we remain in Him and we let His words dwell richly in us and we will naturally pray in line with His will. Lastly, this morning, and don't let that fool you, abiding glorifies God. God gets the glory from our bearing fruit and God gets the glory from our abiding. Look at verse 8. By this, we need to ask, what does by this mean? What he's just been talking about, bearing fruit and abiding and praying. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear, there it is, much fruit. And this is really important. And so prove, so give evidence, so that you know that you are in the family of God and that you are saved and so prove that you are my disciples. So by this, by what? By abiding in Him. By His words remaining in us that will result in bearing fruit, bearing more fruit, bearing much fruit. And when that happens, who gets the glory? Not us, but God gets the glory. That he's the one, that's the vine dresser, the father. Notice what Jesus says there. My father is glorified in this. Why? Because my father is the vine dresser. 
He is at work within the church, cultivating and cutting the vine so that it will produce fruit and produce more fruit and produce much fruit. So the Father is glorified by the fruit of faith. And God is glorified when the nature of Christ is displayed as the fruit in our lives. What's the Father's great work? What does the Father want for us more than anything? That we would be conformed to the image of His Son, as Romans 8, 29 speaks about. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And then that's that's 28 and then 29 it says that He has purposed that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. Bearing as much fruit as possible brings the greatest glory to the Father. And so Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 16, He said in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works watch this and give glory to your father who is in heaven so we cannot produce any fruit it's impossible jesus said that we talked about that last week not possible to produce any kind of fruit unless we surrender and we abide and he moves in us as we yield and we trust and walk with him The Father gets the glory. But I want you to notice. Notice this. Do not miss this. Our fruit bearing has a purpose. Not just for our benefit. It's so that others would see that there's something dominating our lives that is not our own will. We are being led by, controlled, and being filled by the glory of Christ. So he says that. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove, so give evidence that you are my students. You are the ones that are learning from me. And so you prove this. Fruit in line with the character and nature of Christ as a follower and disciple of Jesus is the character of Christ and it is to be seen by others. So it's really important to recognize what Jesus is pointing out here, that our discipleship is to be seen, not hidden. Now, it's not to be bragged. It's not to be like Jesus spoke about in in Matthew 6. Don't go stand on the street corner in your fancy clothes and pray really elegant prayers. Don't let everybody know when you give to the needy. It's not about that. It's but, it's, but it is about living and revealing to those around us. I, I am led not by myself. I am led by my King and by my Lord. And His name is Jesus. And so what you see in me as I wrestle with some of the struggles I have in my life, co-worker, is not because I'm great. It's because one who is in me is great. And He's doing this great work in me. And so our discipleship is to be seen. By others. Now notice this. When something is proven. You know what it always gives? Assurance. Confidence. When something's proven. We can go wow that's true. That gives assurance and confidence. That something real is in that person's life. Or watch. Something real is in my life. Because he is in me. And I am in him. There is an assurance 
and his great work that proves that I am his disciples. So by abiding and his words remaining in us and us living to the glory of his name and connected to his nature, as learners, we learn from him, we reveal that he is our teacher, fruit is produced in our lives as we remain. And that fruit, watch, is so important, assures you and I and proves to you and I that we belong to him and not to the enemy. That there's been a transformation and salvation that has come to our lives. So our faith is to be so clear and full of direction that those around us perceive who we belong to and who we live for and who we serve. And when that happens, we get the assurance of salvation. Now I'm going to close our time today by dealing with this so proved to be my disciples. I've been at this thing called church ministry since I was 20 years old. So for 36 years now, in November, I became a youth minister at age 20 when I was a sophomore in college. And, um, and so I've been at this for 36 years. And when I look back over those 36 years, there is one predominant theme that has risen to the top in those 36 years that I hear people in the church ask more than anything else is how do I know? How do I know that my salvation is secure? Can I lose my salvation? Is there something that I can do where God turns his back on me and walks away? So what I would like to do is walk through. Are y'all okay about reading scripture? Y'all okay about that? So what I'd like to do is I'd like to show you what Jesus said, what Paul said, what John said, and what Peter said about the assurance that proves and reveals to us that our salvation as his disciples is secure. So according to Jesus in John chapter 15, Abiding has three, these aren't going to be on the screen, so if you are taking notes, you'll, you won't see these. There are, abiding has three strong implications, three strong things. First one is this, abiding describes our salvation. And so Jesus in John 15 begins to describe this, that he is in us and we are in him. That is a description of salvation. At salvation... God comes to reside inside of us, and we are in him. So this language of I and you, and you and me, this is a picture of salvation. So abiding has that first picture. It describes our salvation. Secondly, according to Jesus in John 15, abiding describes the process of our developing and growing sanctification. It describes the process of our developing and growing sanctification. So we've talked about that over and over in these weeks. We will bear fruit. More fruit, and then what? Much fruit. So there's abiding pictures, this growing aspect of our sanctification from our salvation. Thirdly, and really importantly, abiding also describes the security of our salvation. I have some great news this morning. Everyone in the room who is a child of God and you are not relying on your own strength and your own works, but you have fallen onto the nature of Christ and the work of Christ. The Trinity, listen to this news. 
the Trinity lives inside of every believer. Every believer, the Trinity does. Well, I thought the Holy Spirit does. Yeah, he does. But Jesus says the Father lives in us, and Jesus says that he lives in us. So this great security that comes to us is connected to the Trinity living inside of God's people. All three of these must be kept in mind in the section from Jesus. And with each of them, they are critical for you and I to understand that abiding is connected to our salvation. Abiding is the process of developing and in, in, in our growing sanctification. And abiding describes the security of our salvation. So I want you to go to John chapter 10. So I don't close our time today by spending it defining what happens at salvation and why what happens at salvation assures us that our salvation is secure and that we cannot lose our salvation. So we're going to journey through the Scriptures to see this great truth. And here's the reality. Either we can lose our salvation or we cannot. There's not a middle ground about this. We either can lose it or we can't lose it. And I want to show you that there's not a middle ground or there's not another option, that the Trinity in us is our security, and that is what Jesus is stressing in John 15, an aspect of that assurance. John 10, verse 28. Jesus speaking here. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands, a hand. I, notice this, here's why this can't happen. I and the Father are one. Look, He gives eternal life. We are placed in His hand at salvation, the Father's hand. We are in the hand of Jesus at salvation. No one, because the Father and the Son are one. No one, not even ourselves, can remove us. I want to remind you, we looked at it last week. Jesus said to the 11, all of you are clean. The one that was unclean had already gone. He'd removed himself from the room. He's getting his money to betray Christ. In just a few hours, one who is clean by the name of Peter, what's he going to do three times? He's going to deny. So not even Peter in his denials could remove himself from the hand of the Father and the hand of the Son. Go to John 14 now. I've done all these in order, so we're just going to keep working our way to the right. Verse 23. Again, this is Jesus' description of our security. We're going to kind of go a little faster now. So Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, who's we? The Father and Jesus and we will come to him and make our home with him. The Father and Son make their home in us. Go to verse 20 of John 14. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and look at this, and you in me and I in you. Jesus in us. Go to verse 17 of John 14. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. How do you know him? For he dwells with you 
and will be in you. Go to John 17, verse 23. I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Watch. Isn't that incredible? Do you, do you see words of Jesus? I am in you. The Father is in you. The Spirit is in you. And there's nothing that we can do to remove us from His hand. Now to go to Romans 8 and see what Paul has to say about this. Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but where? In the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, notice the Spirit is capitalized, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Spirit in us. Now turn to your right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This one's amazing. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Do you not know? You are, you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. 17, if, you, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are, you are that temple. Go to chapter 6. Verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit where within you whom you have from God and you are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Go to 2 Corinthians now, chapter 6. Second Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are, we are the temple of the living God. And as God said... I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God. And look at the emphasis here. They will be my people. Go to the next book. It's called Galatians chapter 2.
And then we're going to Philippians, or excuse me, Ephesians 2. Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but notice this, but Christ, where does He live? Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and He gave Himself for me. Ephesians 2 now. I hope you're not offended by reading Scripture. I know you're not, but it's going to end soon. And I'm going to crush this idea that we lose our salvation. Ephesians 2, 22. In Him, you also are being built together. Built together into what? Into a dwelling place for God. Who's doing that work? By the Spirit. He is building us together into a dwelling place, a temple of the Spirit, and the Spirit is doing this work. Go to the next book. It's called Colossians. Or no, it's not. Philippians and then Colossians. Colossians 1. This one is so good. Colossians 1.27 To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is this great mystery? What is this great glory? It is Christ where? In you, the hope of glory. Go to 1 John, just next to Revelation, to the left. So John later... not writing the words that Jesus spoke on the night that he was betrayed, but writing a letter to a group of believers in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you, inside of you, is greater than he who is in the world. So look up here just for a moment. Don't worry about Satan. Don't worry about a new COVID strain in South Africa. Don't worry about anything. Why? Because greater is he who is in you than anyone in the world and even Satan himself. Why? Because he we, we have this great truth. He abides in us and we abide in Him. That's where our security is. Now go to verse 13 of 1 John 4. By this, we know. Notice the word know. We know this. We are assured of this. By this, we know that we abide in Him and that He in us and He in us. How do we know that? Because He has given us of His Spirit. He gave us the Spirit. 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, 
Watch what happens. God abides in him and he in God. 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love, guess where they stay? They abide in God. And guess what God does? God abides in him. And by this, 17 says, is love perfected with us so that we have confidence or the assurance. This is so important. Look at this. By this is love perfected with us so that we have confidence when the day of judgment comes. Notice this last part. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. You know what happens? You know what's going to happen to every believer in the day of judgment? God will see that his spirit is in us. And we will be ushered into the kingdom of heaven for all of eternity. If that's not enough, how about one more? Go to 1 Peter, it's to your left. Sorry, we didn't keep in full sequence, but it's just to your left a little bit. 1 Peter, chapter 1. This is Peter's description of our security. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 and following. Peter gets excited, just starts worshiping. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to the Father's great mercy, what did He do? He caused us to be born again to not a, not a dead hope, to a living hope. How was this done? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now look at four. This is to an inheritance, or in other words, to a salvation. That is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it can never pass away. Guess where it's kept? Where's our salvation kept? How does that verse close? In heaven. It is our salvation, our inheritance is kept in heaven for you, for believers. Look at verse 5. If that's not enough, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, stop there just for a moment. Think about how true and how foundational that is. Our salvation is not in a bank vault on the earth. It is in heaven with Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. And our salvation, watch, is being kept in heaven, guarded through faith. Kept in heaven. We are in His hand. We are in the Father's hand. He is in us. We are in Him. The Father is in us. The Son is in us. The Spirit is in us. We are in the Father. We are in the Son. We are in the Spirit and our salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time is being kept in heaven, undefiled, unfading, imperishable until the final aspect of our salvation is revealed. 
And until then, here, it's hard. It's hard here. But this faith that we have is tested. So look what Peter says in 6. So he says, in this you rejoice, knowing that your salvation is secure. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Look what these trials produce in verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, that's more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Why? Because look at 9, we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. We could actually look at more. After about five and a half hours last night, I kind of quit looking and reading in the New Testament at all these incredible things. Those are enough. This theme of God in us and we in God permeates the New Testament. Do you see that? Permeates the New Testament. Therefore, the shift that needs to be made in our understanding of the doctrine of the security of our salvation needs to be made by us, not the writing of Scripture and the Spirit's leading. The preponderance of the amount of Scripture does not at all lean toward the losing of salvation. It leans toward that our salvation is secure. And again, I go back to we can either lose our salvation or we cannot. And if we can lose our salvation, then we have to strike all of these verses out of the Bible. Every one of them need to be marked out today. The Trinity is not entering our bodies at salvation, making us a temple of God, and then at some point in time later, deciding to up and leave our lives. He keeps us and transforms us. The greatest hope we have today is that God takes up residence in true believers. The greatest security If I was in control of keeping this, hopeless. If you're in control of keeping your salvation, hopeless. You know what you're going to do? At least by 4 o'clock this afternoon, you're going to sin. I'm going to sin. So this isn't, again, this is not about perfection other than His. Trusting in the One who grants unto us His perfection. All of this points to incredible, vital truth. We are not the definition, explanation, description of why our lives have purpose and meaning and contentment and peace. For the explanation of our lives is only the presence of God and the work of God in us. God is taking up residence inside of us. You know, when Jesus came here in the incarnation, he took on a body that was sinless. That's pretty amazing. Can I tell you something even more amazing? 
that at salvation, God comes to live inside sinful bodies. God residing in imperfect people, transforming them to be like his son. And anything of Christian character in our lives, like having a peace that passes understanding in the midst of deep trials, having a joy that transcends trials, is all come because of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. What? Who He has gifted, given to us. So we, we can never say, look at me. We, the only time we say that is, look at me and what He has done in me. He gets the glory. Jesus has our salvation secure. Drive a stake in it. If you need to go to a cemetery today not go inside but outside just take a stick and drive it down whatever it is and drive a stake through this idea that we are in control of keeping our salvation we are not he is great news today from the lord let's pray